Blood Relations In 1858, as British and French expeditionary forces were trying to push their way to Peking, they met with a doughty rebuff from Chinese coastal defenses at the barrier forts. A number of British vessels were disabled by the fire of the defenders and owed their survival to the action of Josiah Tatnall, commander of the supposedly neutral American squadron that was on hand. He intervened boldly both to shield the British ships from Chinese gunnery and to tow them to a place of safety out of range. When asked to account for his abandonment of neutrality, Tatnall replied simply, Blood is thicker than water. This famous and rather mysterious saying, which combines elements of cliché with elements of mixed metaphor, has been a standby throughout the special relationship. It was, in this place and time, a premonitory slogan for the events of 1898, and the rhetoric and poetry of Rudyard Kipling. The American penetration of China, which was a classic case of the Bible and the trading post in tandem, could never declare itself as explicitly colonial, if only because America was explicitly anti-colonial. But it did not scorn to follow the far more openly imperial path blazed by London after the overthrow of the Canton system in what we crudely remember as the Opium Wars. As the coast of China became permeable to Westerners, so American residents and businessmen began to expect more in the way of support from Washington. In 1843, an American mission was appointed by Secretary of State Daniel Webster and instructed to take advantage of the gains procured by Britain in the very important marts of commerce that were becoming accessible. The mission was charged to uphold the commercial and manufacturing as well as the agricultural and mining interests of the United States. There were American diplomats in the succeeding period, Humphrey Marshall and Peter Parker among them, who wanted an independent policy for the United States. This, they thought, would position Washington to take advantage of any shift in Britain's fortunes and perhaps to supplant the cotton of Manchester with a commodity that was king in the American South. All such initiatives were overruled, and the United States continued to follow a course that became known for obvious reasons as jackal diplomacy. The British would dictate terms to the Chinese and incur their detestation for the drug trade. The United States would act as the junior partner, at once more scrupulous and less implicated. Proposals like those of Commodore Perry that the United States should seize Taiwan as a counterweight to the British presence were, ironically in view of future events, thought to be too risky to this enterprise. After the Tatnall Affair in 1858, the American envoy William Reed was well-placed to follow the British and French all the way north, to wait for them to extort the right of foreign embassies to reside in Peking to observe as they demanded free passage along the Yangtze, and to rejoice when they received a guarantee of the protection of missionaries and their converts. After Lord Elgin had accomplished all this, and had ordered the imperial palace at Peking to be obliterated, 
by way of underlining his point. The new American charging, S. Well Williams, waited a month before calmly claiming the same rights and concessions for Americans. It was this ad hoc but ingenious method that incubated the desires of the open-door lobby, which pushed for free trade in an American share and which in early 1898 was rewarded, principally because the Chinese authorities hoped to play on divisions among their foreign predators, with a concession for the southern extension of the main Chinese railway line. Elaboration of the main policy was postponed until after the war with Spain, by which time McKinley and Roosevelt had Guam and Hawaii at their disposal, island possessions effectively pointless, except as stepping stones to China. The epoch in which metaphors of conquest and threat, such as stepping stone, ripe fruit, dagger pointed at, and strategic island, were commonplace just as dawning in just dawning in American life. No sooner was the 1898 war over than John Hay, now Secretary of State, after that instructive sojourn at the London Embassy, began to review his Chinese options. Immediately before the conflict with Spain, Hay had doubted the wisdom of a formal British approach, which had called for an Anglo-American front against other Western powers who might seek exclusive rights in China. The administration was ever wary of the dormant but easily roused anti-British feeling in Congress, a reserve of emotion which always inclined Hay to the informal alliance preference that ever since has been a condition of the special relationship. However, he continued to help thicken the layer of American missionaries and American men of enterprise that was growing by accretion under the Union Jack. In March 1899, he said solemnly that American opinion deplored the great game of spoliation now going on, adding thoughtfully that the U.S. government had great commercial interests and, in a phrase he must have picked up along with Kipling's The Great Game, while at the court of St. James, would not consider its hands tied for future eventualities. By then also, the United States had a Pacific Navy proved in combat, if only at Manila Bay, and could do better than Josiah Tatnell had done at the barrier forts. You may fire when you are ready, Gridley, Admiral Dewey had said to his subordinate as he found the Spanish fleet at his mercy in Manila. Parasitic on British power in the Pacific, though they had been, other American admirals could recognize that they held an initiative and that their own day was only a matter of time. The extent of American sea power is perhaps second only to its nuclear capacity as a symbol of the country's world standing. Any study of the origins of either phenomenon shows the British influence to have been inescapable. Neither Theodore Roosevelt nor Alfred Thayer Mahon was of sufficiently Anglo-Saxon stock 
as the saying goes, to make very much of the bloodline element in the new alliance between London and Washington that burgeoned from 1898. But racial kinship was a strong and continuous theme of that period, and steps were even taken to extend and deepen it by marriage and amalgamation. In his book, The Protestant Establishment, where the word WASP made its acronymous appearance in the American language, E. Digby Balsell spoke of the year 1901 in slightly exaggerated tones. In that year, a British-American, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant establishment consolidated through family alliances between Mayfair and Murray Hill, involving many millions of dollars, authoritatively ran the world, as their ancestors had done since Queen Elizabeth's time. This might have been putting it high, though, as Baldsell says, it was the year when the Protestant patrician Theodore Roosevelt entered the White House and J.P. Morgan, leading layman of the Protestant Episcopal Church and unrivaled czar of our business civilization, formed the first billion-dollar trust, the United States Steel Corporation. It was also true that at that period the Senate was dominated by wasps, or Brahmins as they have sometimes been known, of the sort typified by Henry Cabot Lodge and Nelson W. Aldrich. This might have happened anyway without any great production being made of Anglo-Saxon bloodlines if it were not for expansionism. The expansionist cause meant that there were no further need to downplay an English connection, as sturdy Americans had been wont to do during the middle decades of the century, especially during Britain's perfidious civil war policy. Expansionism had also helped to heal that wound in American life by employing the Southern-dominated office corps in the glorious campaigns in Cuba and the Philippines. Finally, a wave of Jewish and Catholic immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, as well as Ireland, had contributed to a WASP self-consciousness in reaction. Faced with what even quite tolerant figures described as mongrelization, those who could claim a pure stock made haste to do so. There were even nativist reasonings in which this could be dressed up. There was the continuity with the first settlement of the country, sometimes known as the Mayflower Complex. There was the language. There was the ever-present yearning for an ancient and honorable history. And for those who aspired to gentrify themselves and to dignify the possession of land and property, there was a natural model just across the ocean, which had, as Tocqueville pointed out, avoided going the way of the French aristocracy by its genius for adaptation. This genius for adaptation now took the form of intermarriage with American cousins. When Henry James wrote an international episode in 1878, publishing it with Daisy Miller, he was able to make deliciously skillful use of the mutual incomprehension that obtained between the mansions of Rhode Island and the townhouses of London, to say nothing of the castles of the home countries. 
counties. But by the turn of the century, and in the years preceding the outbreak of the Great War, the familiarity gap had closed with hectic, sometime, some thought indecent, speed. On the boat to America, Henry James's Count Otto Vogelstein, admittedly not a conspicuous Englishman, was reflecting, there appeared to be a constant danger of marrying the American girl. It was something one had to reckon with, like the railway, the telegraph, the discovery of dynamite, the chase pot rifle, the socialistic spirit. It was one of the complications of modern life. Later, he wrote, for a Bostonian nymph to reject an English duke is an adventure only less stirring, I should say, than for an English duke to be rejected by a Boston nymph. This was progress of a sort, and involved two commodities with a very different consistency from blood and water, capital and class. Wealthy though many English aristocrats undoubtedly were, the flow of money in exchange for title could really only go one way. The most, the two most famous and emblematic marital alliances, that of Jenny Jerome to Lord Randolph Churchill and of Consuelo Vanderbilt to the Duke of Marlborough, Jenny's nephew by marriage, illustrate the point. English primogeniture tribalism meant that money settled on a bride became the property of her husband. Self-made American tycoons were inclined to kick at this idea when it came to their own daughters. Leonard Jerome was compelled to write to Randolph's daughter, father in the most unsentimental terms. In the settlement as finally arranged, I have ignored American customs and waived all my American prejudices and have conceded to your views and English custom on every point, save one. This one point was an allowance in her own name to his daughter, and when another Marlborough sued for the hand of Consuelo Vanderbilt, he received, after laborious negotiations, a block of shares in the New York Central Railway Company with an income guaranteed for life. Happily for him, in view of the brevity of the marriage, the Vanderbilt Marlborough vows were solemnly solemnized by Bishop Henry Codman Potter, the embodiment of white Protestantism and sometimes dubbed the first citizen of New York. He represented a high synthesis of the Episcopal and the social, and was proud of being on terms with J.P. Morgan as well as with more roughly hewn elements, such as Samuel Gompers. The relative delicacy and restraint of the match between two great clans was not always echoed in the rest of the marriage market. An advertisement placed in the encrusted Tory pages of the London Daily Telegraph in February 1901 read, Will any dukes, marquesses, earls, or other noblemen desirous of meeting for the purpose of marriage, young, beautiful, and rich American heiresses communicate with there follow the name and address of a broker in New Orleans. A New York newspaper had earlier published a marriage guide, which explained the ropes to the aspiring American noblewoman. Dukes are the 
loftiest kind of noblemen in England. There were only 27 of them in the whole United Kingdom. Of these, there are only two available for matrimonial purposes. These are the Dukes of Manchester and Roxburgh. The Duke of Hamilton is already spoken for, the Duke of Norfolk is an old widower, and the Duke of Leinster only 11 years old. Viceroys, of course, were even rarer since there was only one at any given time. How clever, then, of Mary Leiter to land Lord Curzon, the great potentate of the British Indian Empire, and to add the fortunes of her father's partnership with Marshall Field to his broad acres. Decades later, when Ian Fleming summarized the Cold War aspects of the special relationship in James Bond's warm male bonding with a CIA agent, the agent also bore the name of Leiter. Fleming was a terrible snob. There were more than a hundred such weddings between American money and British nobility in the period before the onset of the First World War, and one of them was to give birth to Winston Churchill, the most famous son the special relationship ever produced. The great chronicler of the period, George Dangerfield, has a masterly cameo moment in his book, The Strange Death of Liberal England. The occasion was a ball given in fancy dress at the height of the 1911 House of Lords controversy. An embattled liberal government had threatened to swamp an obdurate Tory upper house with the creation of 500 new peers. On Empire Day, Mr. F. E. Smith and Lord Winterton gave a fancy dress ball at Claridge's. In the middle of the ballroom floor among the Junos and Sarahs and the Cleopatras and the Louis Cannes Duchesses and the pink tulle ballet girls and the young politicians in velvet with jeweled snuff boxes stood Mr. Asquith and Mr. Balfour dressed in ordinary evening clothes. At midnight, a way was cleared through the room for the figure of a peer, wearing robes of state, and bearing on his coronet the legend 499, just one more vacancy. It was Mr. Waldorf Astor. This delicate allusion to the royal prerogative was greeted with rounds of applause from Mr. F. E. Smith in his 18th century white satin, and Mr. Winston Churchill in his scarlet domino. From its inception in the new century, then, the Anglo-American relationship was an affair between military, diplomatic, and social elites. But this did not automatically limit its appeal. The ideology of Anglo-Saxondom, based as it was on blood, could infuse the meanest in station with a sense of superiority. Admittedly, the Anglo-Saxon Review, popular at the time in the better circles, was managed by Jenny Jerome in her capacity as Lady Randolph Churchill. But in resistance to the melting pot, and in anticipation of empire, there was a populist Anglo-Saxonism at work also. In a very widely circulated and influential book called Our Country, published in 1885, the Reverend Josiah Strong had intoned mightily. It seems to me, he said, 
that God, with infinite wisdom and skill, is training the Anglo-Saxon race for an hour sure to come. If I read not amiss, this powerful race will move down upon Mexico, down upon Central and South America, out upon the islands of the sea, over upon Africa and beyond. This prophecy was seconded by a leading pro-expansionist demagogue, Senator Albert J. Beveridge of Indiana, who cried, even as Congress was moving to annex Hawaii, we are Anglo-Saxon and must obey our blood and occupy new markets and, if necessary, new lands. Discoursing about these new lands, which were shores hitherto bloody and benighted, he saw no option but Anglo-Saxon solidarity, an English-speaking People's League of God, for the permanent peace of this war-torn world. In England, Joseph Chamberlain made speeches that were woven from the same rhetorical thread, while in South Africa, Cecil Rhodes was also meditating on an Anglo-American world dominion. It was also at this time that elements of what might be called the WASP aesthetic began to take shape. The old established College of New Jersey took the opportunity in the late 1890s to change its name to Princeton, a title more in keeping with the culture of aspiration. The tortured Anglophile Woodrow Wilson, who inaugurated a faculty at the university, once wrote that everything rested upon the selection of men who were companionable and clubbable. If their qualities as gentlemen and as scholars conflict, the former will win them the place. There was a hunger for academic tradition and for a more ivy-infested context for the incubation of elites, which can still be seen in the hilarious quadrangles of Yale and the sherry parties of Charlottesville. In 1901, two Chicago entrepreneurs purchased that special treasury of English imperial and anthropological learning, the Encyclopedia Britannica. As they sought to invest their new property with ever greater prestige and respectability, they turned to two irreproachable Anglo-Saxon institutions, the London Times and Cambridge University. The Times was persuaded to take considerable advertising from the Britannica and to act as its sponsor. In 1910, Cambridge University was induced to become, for the look of the thing, the publisher of the 11th edition. At a lavish dinner given in London to celebrate this new synthesis, the 11th, editor, the 11th edition's editor, Hugh Chisholm, made a self-criticism. The Britannica, he said, put too narrowly the British point of view in a great number of subjects. You will often find in its articles the use of the phrase in this country, meaning England, and the phrase really represents a certain mental attitude on the part of the contributors. The intended scope of any broadening of this mental attitude was ringingly expounded by the next speaker, Ambassador Whitelaw Reed, who represented the United States at the court of St. James. He evoked 
the undivided and indivisible English-speaking race, that race which is united in its history, in its language, in its pride in the past, in its hopes, and in its aspirations for the future, whose kindred flags engirdle the world. The new edition was a distillate of colonial thinking, full of eugenics and optimism. It bore on its title page the following, dedicated by permission to His Majesty George V, King of Great Britain and Ireland, and of the British dominions beyond the seas, Emperor of India, and to William Howard Taft, President of the United States of America. The new harmony could not have been expressed with greater felicity or to the greater satisfaction of the British end of the axis. For the moment, Chicago's new wealth was paying the price of deference to the dearly bought cachet of royalty and tradition. But an order of precedence based on the idealistic notion of blood was not to survive the shedding of that blood on the scale that in the boom year of 1910 was only four years away. In 1890, as the era of Anglo-Saxon revivalism was dawning in the United States, a whimsical little ceremony was enacted in Central Park. A group of American Shakespeare enthusiasts gathered, nets and cages in hand, and released a carefully taxonomized collection of birds. Their aim was to introduce to the continent all of the avian species mentioned by the bard that were not already native. There are more than 50 kinds of birds cited in Shakespeare, including ostriches and peacocks, so the aim of the enthusiasts was a decidedly quixotic one. Like many such enterprises, it had a chiefly banal result. Instead of an American boscage enlivened with skylarks, nightingales, and remembering Julius Caesar, the bird of night, sitting even at noonday, upon the marketplace. What the country got was the European starling. This bird, long the bane of London cornices, preys upon vermin while being a pest in its own right. It also displaces other birds with cuckoo-like callousness, and in this instance lost little time in deposing the New York State bird, Cialia Cialis, or eastern bluebird, from its traditional tree cavity nesting places. Nobody in that epoch was keener on human and cultural imports from England than Woodrow Wilson, who had since boyhood been enthralled by the images of English and Scottish chivalry and custom. But when he wrote his chapter, The Swarming of the English, in his now neglected History of the American People, he meant to summon a much more healthful, bucolic, and replenishing image than that of the ravenous and proliferating starling. Hemming, the cheerful, thrifty, and staunch Anglo-Saxons who had peopled the eastern seaboard, Wilson gave full rein to the never-absent dimension of sentiment in his personality. It was this self-helping race of Englishmen that matched their wits against French official schemes in America. You may see the stuff they were made of in the Devonshire seamen 
the first attempt at the permanent settlement of the new continent. For a time, all that was most characteristic of the adventurous and sea-loving England was centered in Devonshire. Devonshire lies in the midst of that group of counties in the southwest of England in which Saxon ancestry did least to destroy or drive out the old Celtic population. There is, accordingly, a strong strain of Celtic blood among its people to this day, and the land suits with the strain. Its abrupt and broken headlands, its free heaths and ancient groves of forests, its pure and genial air, freshened on either hand by the breath of the sea, its bold and sunny coasts, all this and Drake and Rowley too. Wilson was not even trying to write history, but when he later fell in with Theodore Roosevelt's idea of there being real Americans and hyphenated Americans, he could claim to have praised and documented the first cause of this conceit. Italian Americans there might be, Irish Americans and Jewish Americans too, but there is something axiomatically absurd in the hyphenate moral universe about the idea of an English-American. Thus, the later need for a term like wasp. The yeomen and bowmen of the downs and the dales and the hamlets of England had no need of a hyphen. They were, when it came to America, original. They were first. Wilson's entire history was infused with an almost automatic response to the calling of race. It was evident when he wrote about the peculiar institution set up by the Southern Christian Anglicized gentry for their special convenience. Domestic slaves were treated with affection and indulgence, cared for by the mistress of the household. The life of the Southern planter's wife was a life of executive labor devoted chiefly to the care and training of her slaves. Social privilege and the proud esprit of their class bred in southern masters a sense of obligations of station, and the spirit of the better men ruled the conduct of the less noble. Not even the hideous eruption of the civil war into these chivalric property relations was enough to shake Wilson's attachment to the idol. No rumor of the Emancipation Proclamation seemed to reach the southern countrysides. No sign of the revolution that was at hand showed itself upon the surface of Southern life. Gentlewomen presided still with unquestioned authority upon the secluded plantations. Great gangs of cheery Negroes worked in the fields, planted and reaped and garnered, and did their lonely mistresses' biddings in all things without restlessness, with quiet industry, with show of faithful affection even. There was, it seemed, no wrong when they fretted under or wished to see righted. The Smiling Fields The future president's attachment to the manorial style was an obvious consequence of his anglophilia, his affection for the planters and their arrangements being at least as much a matter of class feeling as of racial solidarity. But he was capable of deserting the emollient and laborious style for something far more abrasive. In the same year as the planned release of Shakespearean Birds, 1890, there was a national census 
which taxonomized the human population of the United States. Wilson studied the census and did not care for what he found. Immigrants poured steadily in as before, but with an alteration of stock which students of affairs marked with uneasiness. Throughout the century, men of the sturdy stocks of the north of Europe had made up the main strain of foreign blood, which was every year added to the vital working force of the country, or else men of the Latin Gallic stocks of France and northern Italy. But now there came multitudes of men of the lowest class from the south of Italy and men of the meaner sort out of Hungary and Poland, men out of the ranks where there were neither skill nor energy nor any initiative of quick intelligence. And they came in numbers which increased from year to year, as if the countries of the south of Europe were disburdening themselves of the more sordid and hapless elements of their population. Disburdening here meant the assumption of another burden by whom? It would not be precisely correct to say the white man however swarthy some Calabrians or even Hungarians might prove to be. In any case, Wilson had already been extolling the virtues of the dusky tenantry on the southern slave plantations. No, the objection was to the dilution of Anglo-Saxondom. This confusion between America's need for labor and the revulsion of the Protestant establishment towards certain kinds of immigrant has taken many forms down the years. But whether it is an objection to Jews, Catholics, Chinese, Japanese, lumpen elements, or fifth colonists, it has always had some bearing on the Anglo-American special relationship. Just as Kipling was to vanquish Mark Twain on the matter of the Philippines, so the nascent cooperation between Britain and America for the open door to China was to reflect itself. As Duff Cooper bluntly pointed out in his encomium to Admiral Mahan in a campaign against Chinese immigration, Wilson viewed the Chinese incursion with special distaste, again drawing the satirical wrath of Twain, who in a speech at the Waldorf Astoria in New York in 1900 said, behold America, the refuge of the oppressed from everywhere who can pay $50 admission, anyone except a Chinaman. As Democratic nominee in the election of 1912, Wilson found that his published attitudes on immigration were brought up against him with some bitterness. He had encountered the dilemma of many an anti-immigrant politician, that of having to conciliate newly enfranchised Americans. In the course of the election, he made a number of promises and commitments to the foreign-born, including a pledge that literacy tests would never be used to determine citizenship. In 1915, he vetoed an attempt by Congress to impose quotas on immigration by this means. But by 1915, an entirely new avenue of attack on un-Americans and hyphenated Americans was opening up. Prompted, as we saw, by Rudyard Kipling, Theodore Roosevelt had impugned the loyalty of German Americans. 
after the Lusitania sinking, with meetings of the Jingoistic Navy League starting to draw large crowds, Wilson began to feel the need to accommodate to his former rival's propaganda. In a number of addresses, he called for preparedness, a useful code word for suggesting the enemy without and the enemy within, while yet not quite defining it. In another speech, this time to the Daughters of the American Revolution, that ideal vessel of the Mayflower spirit, he cheerily suggested that critics and faint hearts be subjected to the fine old college practice of hazing. Who knows what Princetonian memories or nostalgia for English public school stories prompted this presidential endorsement of bullying and baiting. The speech was even more noteworthy for its coinage of a catchphrase or slogan. The question for the hazers to put to the doubters, said Wilson, was, is it America first or is it not? Not for the last time in his career, Wilson was handing a weapon to those who detested everything he stood for. In later years, the cry of America first was to become the combined cry of the chauvinists and the isolationists, and was to be directed principally at the Anglophiles and their allies. It's interesting and important to remember that it was coined in England's cause at an ultra-WASP rally. In his annual message to Congress at Christmas the same year, Wilson developed the theme of Americanism and nativism even more bluntly. The gravest threats against our national peace and safety have been uttered within our own borders. There are citizens of the United States, I blush to admit, born under other flags, who have poured the poison of disloyalty into the very arteries of our national life. All this made his claim to neutrality in the Great War seem pharisaic. So did the intense profiteering in the name of the British war effort by J.P. Morgan and others of the Protestant elite, who treated the Neutrality Act with disdain and added considerably to the art and science of the dummy company in supplying the materials of war. The British establishment not only benefited from the wave of chauvinism, but made it, made it its business to encourage and generalize it. Sir Gilbert Parker, who headed the British propaganda effort in the United States, was imprudent enough to write an article for Harper's Magazine in March 1918, in which he simultaneously boasted of his achievement in the manipulation of American public opinion and reinforced the ethnic undergirding of the special relationship. I wonder how many Americans know that all German Americans are still Germans by law, and if they do know it, how they must resent the iniquity of the nation that makes of the law of naturalization a scrap of paper to be torn up like the sacred compact for the neutrality of Belgium. Seeking to relate this to the joint project of expansionism and empire, Sir Gilbert ingeniously reminded his audiences that George III had after all used German mercenaries against the heroes of the 13 colonies and rushed on from this revision to evoke the brave days of 1898. 
What was accomplished at Manila toward making America a world power was exceeded infinitely there by the splendid action of Admiral Chichester and Britain's navy in threatening the German naval forces, which drew the two nations together in a spirit of comradeship.